Hello and welcome to an update episode of Walk Softly Children. I am Joe McGuire, the executive producer. April 26th was Mark Vincent's parole hearing. And spoiler alert, you're not going to like the results. I didn't. No, I know you definitely didn't. So, Jess, for anybody who did not attend, why don't you tell us a little bit about the setup, what it looked like, and, and kind of how things went? Because I know you were surprised as to kind of how it ended up. Well, it was hosted on Zoom, and the public was able to attend that way. When you looked at it, and I think the the hearing is still available online, and I'll post the link if I can find it, if it's still available. It was just a small room off of a bigger room that a bailiff was welcoming each prisoner one by one into. I think Mark was the eighth or the ninth. And it was just a small table with the three parole board members who weren't visible to us, to the viewer on the camera. They were Nancy Turner, Joy Chance, and Rufaro Page, who are all, I guess, recent additions. I think one of them is from 2012, but one is very recent. And then each applicant for parolee was allowed to make an opening statement. They were then questioned, and then the panel deliberated in front of them um, with their mics on. The prisoner could listen but not interrupt what they were saying. What did you say? There were eight people total, eight parole hearings? No, I think I looked it up at the end because I just watched through Mark, and maybe there were 15, something like that. But he was about the eighth or the ninth. And, and what was roughly the percentage? I think three were paroled out of that total. So three out of, say, 14 or 15. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, not to give you the spoiler here, but you were a little bit confused as to the result because can you kind of talk about the questions that they were asking both of Mark and then of the other uh, parolees that just get a sense of it, it didn't look good for Mark, at least from what you had been hearing. Well, they asked things like, what programs have you completed? And those were, you know, rehab programs or mentor programs, educational programs. They considered whether there was a victim statement. They considered how likely the applicant was to reoffend in the future. They called that their recidivism rating. A lot of the crimes involved guns. So they asked why those people needed the gun, what they were using it for, and if a lot of them claimed that they were using them for self-protection. So they would ask, what specific purpose? Why do you feel you need to be protected? One guy was a narcotics dealer who'd been dealing in a large amount of cocaine. And he said he brought his gun out because he needed to protect himself. And the board pointed out that he was protecting himself from circumstances that he had created. So that didn't go over very well. But also they were asked if they had any training in the handling or use of guns. Addiction was also a big issue that they raised, whether they were aware of their issue, how they felt about their issue, what kind of support system was available outside of the prison for them to partake of, and then what would help them make better decisions, sort of what their plan was to face their addiction once they were outside of the prison. So in other words, do you have a support system outside of the prison that will be able to keep you on the straight and narrow going forward? Right. Well, one guy said, I will, I plan on going back to my friends and just telling my friends, it's not good to drink. It's not good to do drugs. I'm going to be their mentor. And they pointed out, you can't just go back to the old neighborhood and expect anything to change. 
people that were getting new places or they had mentors in place or they had AA or NA in place. Those people got a lot better reaction from the board, but you can't just, you know, go back to the old way of living and just give it the old college try. They wanted to see something concrete in place. Well, that brings us to the parolee. What was Mark's opening statement like? What was it about? So right off the bat, he said that he knew that he wasn't supposed to have a gun. He knew that. He said, I thought it was a good idea, but in the end, it wasn't a good idea. He apologized for having one. He said, that's my heart and I'm forever sorry. He was very upset about the effect that it would have on his children. He apologized to his children. He said, it's his last gun ever. I just want to reassure you that I will never possess a gun ever again. And I want to point out for those of you who have been around for a long time listening to this podcast and, and remember this, Mark's always had at least one gun and, and maybe two. People have told us he's always had one short gun and one long gun and that he was obsessed with guns. So for him, not having a gun it would be a surprise. Well, isn't it interesting, too, though, that he is apologizing for having a gun, knows that having a gun is wrong because because he's a felon and isn't supposed to have a gun. And then also is that teen challenge where he's also supposed to not have a gun. Right. And he also admitted fully to concealing the gun as well. He said he did it for his protection only, and that was the sole reason he had a gun. How did he fall on the things that they take into consideration as far as what's next for Mark Vincent? Where does he go from here? Well, he had completed no program, so no mentor programs, no education programs, no rehab. He did have no discipline on his record, and he's been working as a janitor the entire time he's been there. He was transferred. He's in Enfield now, whereas he was in, I think, Waterbury, right? That's good to hear. He was a janitor? Yeah. Well, he's been a custodian, right? He does custodial stuff. He has a teen challenge. He was doing that at Milford Christian as well before he got busted. I imagine prisons can be disgusting is why I say that. Why did he have the gun? Uh, how does he explain the gun and what he was doing with the gun? And where did the gun come from? What did he tell them? Well, he said that, he, again, he used it for his protection only. And so they said, protection from what? And he started to say, I see things in the news every day. America's a scary place. There's always some story with a gun. And then they asked him if he had any particular reason. Did he feel a particular threat to his personal safety? And he said, no, it was just a generalized fear. They asked him if he knew how to fire a gun. And he said he shot rifles on the sandbanks with his dad when he was a kid. The parole board brought up that that was very different from having a handgun in the handling. One guy actually, Joe, said, I know how to shoot a gun from movies and TV. And that was, <laughs> yeah. that was quickly brushed off. But otherwise, he admitted he never formally learned how to handle, clean, or discharge a gun. And then when he admitted that it was concealed, and he specifically said, in the floorboards of my car, one of the board members brought up Teen Challenge, and she said, aren't you worried that kids would have been able to get their hands on the gun? And I was surprised he didn't correct her to point out, as I think many of us thought in the beginning, these weren't teenagers that he was dealing with in this particular, I guess, iteration of Teen Challenge. All right. Well, where did he say he got the gun? Because anyone who listens to this podcast and maybe half of the Wallingford Police Department know 
where the gun came from. What did he tell the parole board? Well, first he said, oh, I don't I don't want to implicate anybody. I don't want to get anyone into trouble. Right. And I, I have Paul's picture. His face pops right up in my mind. And they say, well, you're before the parole board. So you're going to tell us. And he said, oh, a friend gave it to me. Hmm. Um, it was a very bad mistake. I didn't they didn't push him on which friend. They didn't specify the friend. He basically said it was a gift and they didn't delve any further into the details of that. Kind of scary that he's being released. They don't know where he got the gun, who gave him the gun and who could possibly give him another gun. That's that's an interesting fall down there by the parole board to not even ask that question. I don't I don't understand, it, especially in light of the fact he's been convicted of gun possession before. You know, it's really interesting because I, I thought to myself, right, I don't know how often they have these hearings. I think it's every few days or so from what I saw. But that's a lot of information to delve into for each potential parolee. You have to remember the fact that he had the theft of the gun charge shaved off of his charges when he pled so that that charge was stricken. He only pled guilty for the possession and not the theft. So they didn't have the theft facts in front of them. Also, the, he said, yes, I was convicted of having a gun before they looked back at 1991. He said, I was convicted of having a gun that was my wife's. Of course, that's Sharon. And the actual holding that his conviction was based on was that it was not Sharon's gun. It was, in fact, a gun that was Mark's because he said, that's my gun. If it had been Sharon's gun, then he wouldn't have been in possession of it and he wouldn't have been convicted of that charge. So the jury found otherwise. He surprisingly didn't mention her by name. He didn't say where she is now. I mean, I guess she's long gone to him anyway, so she's not even really part of the story at this point. Did they talk about addiction and what addiction problems he may still currently be suffering from? Yeah. And it was really a surprise because these charges have nothing to do with addiction. The only reason that I can think of as to why addiction would have been brought up is because of the teen challenge angle. He said he's been 24 years clean and sober, which is just not true because I have eyewitnesses who have seen him shooting heroin. He said that it's never been alcohol. It's always been hard drugs, but then he's been clean and sober for a really long time. All right. So he gets out July 31st. I think it's July 31st. He has to find a halfway house first. OK, well, outside of the halfway house, let's talk about the support system, because I assume he had to explain what he was heading into if he were to be paroled, which, again, spoiler alert, he did. The first thing he said was, I have three adult kids, which sounds really promising. And then they asked him where the children were. And he said, Ohio, Vermont and Arizona. That's Sarah in Ohio, Paul still in Vermont at Teen Challenge, I assume. And then his son, David, is in the Air Force in Arizona. He did bring up Teen Challenge. He said, I have a lot of contractor friends. I don't know what that has anything to do with addiction support. But he also brought up that he has Milford Christian Church and that's his family. I don't want to defame contractors, but generally they're good at getting weed. Okay. So I don't I don't know why having a good contractor, maybe he meant for working. <laughs> maybe. So he said, I have a family at Milford Christian Church. They pushed him further on that and they said, oh, are there people in active recovery there? And he said, no, they're all absolutely drug and alcohol free, which also isn't true if what I've heard about Susan Martin is correct, that she is or at least has been a heroin addict. 
she might be in recovery. She might not be, but she has had that issue in the past, according to my sources. Interesting. What about Kathy, the wife? He said, I do have a house. It's all paid for. Unfortunately, I am divorced from my wife, which I don't think that's formalized. I don't think that really matters, though, because from what I've heard, he's not welcome in Kathy's house. He also, the parole board seemed to think that the woman whose gun he possessed in 1991 was the same woman, and he didn't make any attempt to correct them. Not that he would have to, but he just made it seem like it was like one wife carrying through his life. And I'm sure he mentioned his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, he definitely got there because he started telling them over and over, drugs and alcohol is not a big problem for me. And they said, ah, that's the problem. You don't consider yourself an addict. You're lying to yourself. If you don't really believe you're an addict, then you're not going to face the problem. Once an addict, always an addict. And they told him not to be arrogant. So at this time, right, I'm thinking to myself, okay, He's not really facing up to the gun. He's not taking any responsibility besides the empty apology at the beginning. He's not owning up to the fact that he's an addict. And then they asked him if he knows anyone in AA. And he said, well, I don't go to meetings, but I like to sit around and share stories with people and encourage them and learn from them. And I mean, it sounds like he's failing in all of his responses. Exactly. And they said AA or NA, that's not a place where you just go and sit around cheap coffee. That's a place where you go and you share which of the 12 steps you're on. And they asked him which step he was on and there was no answer and he didn't push it. So the parole board member who had been really pushing him on the attic thing, she said, I wish that you had come in with a plan, but at least you're aware that something like AA is available. And then he saw that that was not getting the traction that he wanted. So then immediately that's when he brought up Jesus. He got into Jesus right there. That and that's that's who's going to fix all this. So he said he doesn't believe in addiction. He doesn't think that's a thing. He believes in the new creation, and he didn't specify exactly what that was. People listening might know what that is, but the new creation. He said, "I wrote it down. That nightmare is so fresh to me always. I know that I'm not perfect, but I know who delivered me, and I am forever grateful." And at that point, I'm thinking. This guy's shit out of luck, right? Because the first parole board member says to him, I wish you luck. And then the second woman had no further questions. And then the third woman, I think she just asked him some basic questions about addiction. And then it was on to the deliberation. And let's talk about the deliberation, because, again, this has a terrible ending. <laughs> again, it seems like this guy's showing up at the deliberation hearing unarmed at this point. Like nothing seems like it was going his way as far as you don't have a plan. You won't admit that you have a problem and you don't really seem like you have any sort of support cast at all. You're not leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking is, is where you have to be thinking this is going. Well, he also said at some point they asked him if he had a halfway house and he said, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think that I might. And in speaking with a listener who knows about the system, because she has been involved personally in it, she told me that the first step would be a sponsor, right? Someone who welcomes you into their house, which I would assume is Jim. Jim usually takes his fallen into his house. He's got spare bedrooms there. And I guess that's not the case. So no information was provided about a halfway house. As for him falling short on all the points, I was really struck by the people that came in 
that obviously hadn't been prepared, right? They're giving rambling answers. They're not really answering the question asked. They don't have a piece of paper in front of them or any sort of plan. And Mark struck me as that. And I thought to myself, hasn't he been through this a number of times? So he sat there and the first woman said, I wish that he had had that much faith in his community in the first place. So he wouldn't have picked up a gun he didn't know how to use. And that's how the deliberation started. And so I'm thinking, okay, we're home free. And then immediately after that, she said that she would be willing to release him. She said he has no discipline on his record. He has a home. And that because he's going to be, assuming he gets parole on the state's deadly weapon registry for five years and serving three years of probation, that he'll have time to think about what he did as though that was a bonus. I mean, he could definitely think about it in prison, right? I'm going to say something you're not going to like. Go for this it. This is for Skip Sieber and, and some of your other listeners, though. But this, you mentioned the panel people. Yeah. All. All Dems, yeah. All Democrats. And you hear people talk about this all the time, about how Democrats are weak on crime. And it seems like, again, I don't think these people really knew who or what they were dealing with. Although, you guys had a letter writing campaign. Do these folks even get that stuff? No, or we did not? not have a letter writing campaign. Oh, you because, didn't? No, because it would. But a few of you did, I know, wrote letters. Yes. We wrote letters to the prosecutor in the beginning when the charges were first being filed against oh. Mark. Uh, the family opted not to send any letters to the parole board and no victim statement. So I guess that would have been Paul's, right? Victim statement. Allegedly. Alleged. Well, <laughs> But yeah, no, on the Dems issue, I understand because when that point was raised, I actually went on Google and I started to try to figure out when each of these members was nominated to the board. And I looked them up and they were all nominated by Malloy, right, and Lamont. But that's the case in Connecticut, right? I mean, it's, of course, we don't have Republican leaders in this state. We're letting people out of jail sometimes that shouldn't. And it seems like, and this might just be a classic example of, I don't think these people know who or what they're dealing with. And I think the other thing, Jess, is Mark always presents well. And as disorganized as Mark is, you know, Mark can get a sense of saying the right things to people, telling them what they want to hear. And if it's saying I don't like drugs anymore, isn't working. I'm going to go to the, my, the, the Jesus bag now, and then I'll, whatever I got to do, my kids, I've shamed them. For Mark Vincent to say he shamed his children, I, I, if I was there, I would, have, I would have had to audibly laugh. Yeah, I did. What a joke. And if those people had any sort of information about this, and he said that, I think they would have had a better sense of the kind of despicable human being that they were dealing with. You know, it was really striking because I sat there and I watched, like I said, the eight or nine or so before he came up. A lot of them had been involved in some really serious stuff, you know, serious drug charges, serious gun charges. But they all presented extremely well, except for one guy who got up at the end when it was obvious he wasn't getting parole and stomped out and slammed the door shut. But Mark does have that charm that everyone's always spoken about. And I think when I sent you the picture of him originally, right, what did you say? He looks terrible. He looks terrible. So they also said that. They said he's 66 years old. He's likely to age out of the system. I don't know exactly what that means because criminals can crime <laughs> through their entire that, lives, right? 
I hate, I got to make a joke here. Okay. That sounds like something a Democrat would say. Okay. He's too old to go to jail. Well, they just said. Just kidding, everybody. I'm just joking. They but said that they is didn't want ridiculous. him dealing with that into his 70s. They wanted him to be able to put it aside and not have to deal with it. There was So he will, assuming he gets out at the beginning of July, he'll turn 67 in August. And then he'll be 70 when his parole is over. But remember, ever since he's been old enough to vote, he's been committing crimes. He's been in and out of prison his entire life. So what's next now? What exactly happens here? You, you mentioned the end of July. He gets out. Yeah, he has to go to a halfway house. Right. So the woman that I spoke to with knowledge of the system told me that halfway houses are very difficult to line up. She anticipated the date, you know, being pushed back and pushed back. Other people obviously aren't so optimistic about it. They think, you know, he'll get out and they won't put him back in. But this woman also said if he he has to toe the line perfectly, if he does anything wrong, if he's out past his curfew or if he's caught with a drink or if he fails a drug test or anything like that, then he's going right back in. But I mean, at this point, I think he So was, it sounds like this will probably be a temporary release. Well, but he was sentenced. I don't remember. It was in the fall, maybe November. So the entire sentence was six years, three suspended, which means three in jail. Now I think he's been in since November. So what is that, like six months or so? And then he'll have served less than a year. He'll have served about nine months when he gets out. There's just no justice in the world. You know, like you said, they didn't know who they were looking at. They're looking at this kind of old doddering guy, right, who had a gun and a friend gave it to him. And he just kind of stumbles into these horrible, inopportune things that he should have known he wasn't supposed to have a gun. And he feels in his heart that he'll never have a gun again. They don't know that they're looking at someone accused of assaulting young girls, maybe doing something to his daughter and all the other heinous stuff that he's done his entire life. They don't know that whole character like we do. Well, if the Wallingford Police Department wants to nail this thing down, we'd love to come back in there and start formulating some kind of plan because you don't have a lot of time now on your side. Well, I did send them a new FOIA request because I went, I spoke to the police last August. I had a pretty long meeting with them in August. I gave them some follow-up information because, I, you know, I've gotten a lot of stuff. I've pulled a lot of stuff that I offer to them on a silver platter without really anything in return because my goal has always been, right, to solve it. I'm not out to have this contest with the Wallingford Police Department over who can get it done faster. They stopped responding to me in October. I followed up with them a couple more times. January, nothing. So finally, I just said, okay, it's time I file another FOIA request. And if they deny that one, then I'm going to bring it to another hearing. My hope is that they come to me and want to negotiate some sort of middle of the road result where I can take a look at some stuff and we don't have to go to a full-blown hearing, but I'm more than prepared to do that if necessary. Well, hopefully these guys will come to their senses again. Time is of the essence here. If you want to nail this guy, it, it's time to sit down and figure out how you can get a prosecutor. Probably, you know, they, they might want to finally meet the nobody guy. Yeah. The nobody expert uh, who can literally walk you guys through <laughs> how to present a nobody case if that's so difficult for you guys. Okay. And if this message has to go to the state prosecutor in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, then we'll direct it to those folks. If you don't know how to prosecute a case, we already got the expert to help you do it. Well, Kristen Smart, Paul Flores, was just found guilty of her murder in 1995. Nobody, no confession. 
And now I think coming up in the summer is the Alyssa Turney case where her father's been accused of murdering her. No body, no confession. So it certainly can be done. I want to remind the audience what Tad DiBiase, the nobody guy, told me that there's a much higher percentage of convictions when there's no body because the prosecutors go armed to the teeth with the evidence that they have. Circumstantial evidence, right? But evidence nonetheless. An interview he told Josh Mankowitz something really interesting in a podcast for Dateline that I was listening to the other day. He said, when you start talking about what could have happened, then a juror might think, okay, there's reasonable doubt because this could have happened, this could have happened. But if you pose it to the jury more as a question of likely, what likely happened, right? Just start stacking all those pieces of circumstantial evidence on top of themselves. He didn't report her missing. He took the phone off the wall. He was supposed to go and look for her and he went tooling around the state. So that's that's definitely part of a case. I, You know, I presented, I think it was 47 pieces of circumstantial evidence to the police last summer, gave him a big list and DeMeo just took it and kind of threw it back down on the table. And he said, yeah, we know all this, but I'm like, there has to be a way to present it. It's all in the presentation. You almost kind of want to go to the state prosecutor at this point. Because I think that's ultimately who decides to take the case, right? And from what we've always gathered from the Wallingford PD, it right, in, in consultation with the state police, right, what are the things we have to get done in order to get picked up by a cold case unit, right? Which are good questions, but even how would you even solve that? You decided to stay in house with it. Okay. Well, what were the steps that you needed to take? Because Ultimately, Wallingford has to be able to present something to the state prosecutor. And again, I get the sense maybe that these guys still don't quite understand what they need to present to the state. Well, to be fair, they might be churning and burning, you know, behind closed doors. They might be doing a whole bunch of stuff that we have no idea. They also might have fallen off the face of the earth with regard to this investigation because their feet haven't been held to the fire. I think the last time it was publicly reported was in February 2020, when they said one to two years for an application for an arrest. Now, I understand COVID happened and that slows things down a little bit, but we're well out of COVID at this point. They've had plenty of time. There was also some complacency, though, with Mark being arrested on the gun charge and that he wasn't Agreed. going anywhere anytime soon. And now he's already making plans to get out here. So, again, it's time to step up the game and get moving. You also have to consider who you're talking about, too, because Brad, Mark's brother, has repeatedly told me that once Mark gets out, he's gone. There was no discussion of any kind of ankle bracelet, and I don't think there will be an ankle bracelet in this situation because I think they would have had to tackle that or add it as a, a condition of his parole when I was listening. But Brad said he would even cut that off and be in the wind, right? I mean, you have to consider that when the police started sniffing around in 1989, he got Sharon to get that gun, and he went to California and slipped out from under their radar. Then he came back, and that's when he was caught with that gun. Same thing happened when the cops came sniffing around in 2000, beginning of 2022, at Teen Challenge, Vermont. He convinced Paul to buy a gun, and then he stole it, and then he made his way to Connecticut. He's not going to stay around in one place and evade responsibility for what he's done. He thinks that they're hot on his trail and he's not willing to stick around and see how that plays out. Well, that's a scary notion because, uh, again, the date's coming up pretty quick here. There is going to be a whole bunch of new stuff on Patreon. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? 
yeah. So I just cut episode, what is it, Joe, 12 of season three. Mm -hmm. I wrote it and scripted it and pulled all my audio because I've been collarbone deep in Jim Loomer's sermons. And there's a lot of really disturbing stuff in there. The problem is it's all very political and a lot of it has absolutely nothing to do with Doreen or with the former children of Milford Christian Church. My plan had been to show that Jim, again, is extremely disingenuous. He doesn't mean what he says. He doesn't say what he means. He's always uh, very charming and so evades responsibility on what he's supposed to be doing. But it came out extremely political and it definitely sounds less objective than my goal usually is. And I am wary of airing it on the regular feed because I think it it doesn't fit into the story. It sounds more, what did you call it? A hit piece? I don't want it to be a hit piece, but. A little bit of a hit piece. Yeah. you. It's funny. You asked me what I thought of it and you told me at first that you didn't love it and that you thought it was a little. It's a little biased. Yeah. Right. And when you said that, I said, I, I agree with you. But again, I think for people who are invested in, especially for people who either can separate politics or agree with your politics, will enjoy the episode quite a bit. Well, I've said before repeatedly that I don't want this to be a condemnation of the Christian religion. That's not what this is about. This is a condemnation of Jim's particular sect of Christianity and the way that he uses it as a shield and a sword to allow kids to be hurt. I have not wanted it to be a hit piece on conservative values either. And I know people have pushed back on that to share what was in the episode was the fact that he went to the insurrection. He was there. Alan Parody climbed a wall at the insurrection and he took students with him, for which there was a big pushback. He also talks about stretching the 501c3, which, as you know, is the statute that allows him to not pay taxes constantly jokes about the fact that he's obviously a political arm encouraging people to vote for who he wants them to vote for. And if the IRS found out, frankly, I don't think they would have a 501c3 anymore and they'd have to pay taxes. The third piece is that he has filed a lawsuit against three agencies in the state. They have required the Little Eagles kids to get vaccinated or they said they're going to shut the school down. And from what I know, Little Eagles is the bread and butter. They provide the money that keeps the church going. And so with no Little Eagles, there really is no church. So it's an examination of all those things. But given the conservative slant on much of that, again, I think I feel more comfortable not releasing it as a part of the story. It would be more like an episode for Patreon that people can access if they're really into the story and not, I guess, won't get angry at me for including all of that and in, in trying to come after Jim. So if you do join Patreon, it's like $5 a month is the minimum. And we are going to make it worth your while. We've got the Jimmy Farnham episode that we're also going to be releasing where we go through that call. And then there's all sorts of other stuff, previous unreleased episodes for those of you who aren't already members of Patreon, if you want to join. We're going to continue and start putting out even more stuff there. And I decided today that I'm, I'm going to make a sticky beak or walk softly <laughs> children Instagram account. You're going to do it. Okay. Because I have no idea about Instagram. I'll do it. I feel like I've aged out of that process, just like Mark's aging out of the, you know, the criminal prosecution yeah. process. But, you know, it needs to be done and TikTok needs to be done. 
I want to say thank you to all the patrons and even the people who don't pay for it and are just listening because they're talking about it. That's for sure. Well, we're doing this. It's just me and Joe, right? If we had a team, if I did this as my sole job, you know, if we didn't have the kids, maybe I'd have more time to do all this stuff and pursue it as a solo, I guess, goal. But we're doing it on our own time. And so I appreciate the people that are paying for us to. I just rambled there. Whatever you want to say there is fine. I spent like <laughs> 10 hours making an episode that's not going anywhere but on Patreon. So I hope I hope people will come check it out. Well, I think <laughs> you were also upset with me because of the amount of Jim sermonizing and singing, which A, is not good. There's some Susan singing in there if you want to hear more of that. But you've said to me repeatedly when you walk in on me and you hear me listening to the sermonizing, you're going to brainwash yourself. Yes. And I have been walking around singing Jim's church songs to myself. On top of that, Super Mario Brothers peaches from Jack Black that our kids are obsessed with. 51 clips from the sermons. Maybe a little bit less. Maybe six of those weren't him. Well, there's some Fox News in yeah, there. Yeah, but it's, it's him again. Other, yeah. it's, a lot of, it's a lot of Jim. If you're into Jim Loomer, Jim, you might want to listen to this episode, to be honest. This one's... Uh, you think Jim wants to buy a patronage or... I don't think he wants to buy a, a, a... No. Oh, well, then there's also, so really quick, Attorney Cameron Atkinson. If none of you have looked him up, he's in a Fox News clip online about the suit against Milford Christian Church. He is a very particular character. He's got a real penchant for his white Stetson hat. He's been out of law school only a few years, I think. But he characterizes himself as a bulldog and a fighter. He does all sorts of martial arts. And he's he's a character as well. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, that's a good word for him. You working on another episode right now? I am. So my plan had been to really pull back the curtain on the really heinous shit that Susan Martin, Alan Parody, and Mark Vincent have done to children. I've been sort of dangling the carrot this entire time because I've been nervous about putting that stuff out. It's really heavy. I'm going to big, give big trigger warnings for it. I was also worried about the people that it might affect, you know, these former students hearing about themselves that it would, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's very affecting and it's very horrifying. But yeah, I think those will be my next three and just detailing the ways in which Jim has helped these people I guess, cover up their sins. Clovercrestmedia.com backslash walk softly children. Again, we are on Patreon. Hope you could join us there. There is a lot and a lot more coming to that page. Also make sure you are in. Did you change the name of the Facebook group to walk softly children? Facebook group? group's name is changed to walk softly children. Is the Patreon changed to walk softly children? It will be by the time this by gets the time released. You listen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, Joe, you had suggested putting Georgia Lewis's music up on Patreon. I want to check with her longtime family friend. I think that would be OK, but I just want to double check with him first. But I do have two CDs of her music that we should be able to use as well. Plus, I got a Joe rant about to drop, though. Oh, re I did not know that. Yeah. I think the people miss you. A yeah. Lot. Well, I miss the people. So let's get on it and let's get to it. Make sure you check us out social media. Uh, like I said, there's going to be an Instagram that's going to happen. And uh, we ask you to please comment, subscribe, like, share, review, do all that stuff. Review really gets it in people's faces. Jess asks everybody to write a review, so make sure you do that. And we will be back soon with another episode, well-written, 
Hey, it was and a little bit well less written. of a hit piece. No, I'm just kidding. It was it's... very well written, and I was very proud of it. But when I listened to it, I thought to myself, oh, this sounds like you have an axe to grind personally against Jim. I don't know if everybody's going to want to hear it, especially right in the beginning of the season. People kept saying, well, what does Milford Christian Church right. have to do with Doreen? And my answer would be a lot, but that wouldn't necessarily be clear from this episode. We like to keep the standard of professionalism high. So again, that episode will only be available on Patreon. For Jessica fritz I'm Joe McGuire. Thank you so much for listening to this update episode of Walk Softly Children. Walk softly children. Walk softly children. Walk softly children. Find your freedom, little children. Yeah.